you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 3. 1 Kings chapter 3. Y'all, we're starting to make some progress here. Starting to make some progress here. If you're just jumping in with us, we've been in a series called The Big Story. And the aim of The Big Story is to show that Jesus is the center of all of Scripture. Not just the New Testament, not just the Gospels, but all of the Bible, including the Old Testament. That what we have in 1 Kings is the very same thing that we have in Matthew and the same thing that we have in Romans and Revelation. It is the revealing of the gospel for us that we might be redeemed in Jesus. And so we're chronologically, not, uh, not in the order that they're in your Bibles, but chronologically going through the books of the Bible together so that we might can see the gospel here. All right, so 1 Kings chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 15. We're primarily going to be focusing on verses 6 through 15. So let's read those verses together. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It has pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, as we look at Solomon now as a young man, may we see in his desire our own desire. God, as Solomon desired to build a life upon you, God, make it the desire of us each individually and collectively as a church family to build upon the steady foundation that is the rock of Christ. Lord, let us commit ourselves to your ways. 
Let us commit ourselves to live our lives not with us at the center, but with you at the center. Not with us discerning what is good and right, but you through us, showing and revealing to us. And let us, Lord, live lives that are characterized by the kind of wisdom that we see in Scripture. I pray, Father, that you would allow the people of Iron City to live powerful lives. That you would allow us to thrive as men and women of God in the midst of an unrighteous generation. I pray, Father, this morning that you would draw out flawed desires in our heart and flawed senses of self that they might be submitted to you and reconstructed in the way that you intend them to be. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I've prepared my whole life for the moment in which I walk upon a beach and stumble into a golden lamp that has a genie inside. I mean, I grew up, you know, watching Nick at Night and I Dream of Genie and Aladdin came out when, when I was a kid. And so genies were kind of a big deal. And so you always thought, like, if I had the opportunity, and, and I think preparation is the name of the game here, because... What I've discovered in watching all the shows about all the genies is that most people squander the opportunity. Most people squander the opportunity. The genie comes and he, and he gives you three wishes, right? And very often what you see is immediately those first two are burned. I mean, they are gone so fast, right? And you're left with this one wish that you have left and it's kind of hanging over you. And you, you don't want to squander it like you have the others and, and they agonize over the decision and agonize over the decision. And the other thing that I've, I've discovered about the wishes is that you have to be really, really methodical and deliberate about the wish that you make. Because very often people, they will make a wish and the genie either uses it and takes it way too literally, way more literally than they intended, or he uses it to show that it brings about a great calamity, actually, if they were to have it fulfilled. An example. Maybe the genie comes and he, he stands in front of you and, and he asks you, uh, you know, what's your wish are or whatever. And you say, I want to be the ruler of the world. Now, very often what will happen is he will turn you into a tape measure that has a picture of the world on it, right? Or the inverse, he'll actually give you what you want, but then within five minutes you've thrown the entire world into, cosmo, in, into chaos and everybody's come to you and you're overwhelmed and you can't even go to the grocery store without being just pounded and you're driving you crazy. And then if you have one wish left, your only wish is that you can undo your last wish, right? But what the moral of these stories are is that what you wish for reveals what is in your heart. That what you wish for often reveals how much you misunderstand what you actually need. What you actually want. What is actually good for you. Now when we come to 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon gets the dream scenario. So when you come to... 1 Kings chapter 3, David has recognized Solomon as the king. The prophet Nathan has recognized Solomon as the king. But we've not had that moment yet, like happens with all the leaders throughout the Bible, in which God himself comes down and recognizes Solomon as his king. And so in 1 Kings chapter 3, what we're getting is this divine approval from God to make Solomon the ultimate king, or to make Solomon the king of his ultimate people. And so God comes down, and in this moment in which he is giving a divine anointing upon Solomon, he says, Solomon, 
ask what I shall give you. Basically, Solomon, if I could give you one thing out of all the things in the earth, if I could give you one desire of your heart, if you had to boil down everything to just one thing that I would be able to give you, ask it and I'm going to give it to you. That would be all right, wouldn't it? That would be all right. Except whatever you say next means everything. Whatever you say next determines where your life goes. Whatever you say next determines not just where your life goes, but the millions of people that you're ruling and that are following after you and where their lives go. And so it seems like a dream scenario, but the truth is, is there's a lot of pressure on that request. And the intent, the intent of God in this situation with Solomon is the same intent that I believe that he has with us this morning. It is to reveal what is in Solomon's heart. It is to reveal what the nature of Solomon's faith and character really are. It is to draw out of Solomon what is inside of him, that it may be clear what is his actual desire, and in fact, not just his desire, but his necessity if he is to live a successful and effective life and reign over the people of God. And it is the same for us. What's unique about 1 Kings chapter 3 is I believe that it sets for us a, a pathway to what answered prayer is to look like in the life of a believer in God. That it sets for us a pathway so that we can see that if we want to pray prayers that are pleasing to God, if we want to pray prayers that God is pleased to answer on our behalf, that this is the pathway, this is the trajectory, this is the way that those types of prayers go. The first thing that I want you to see about Solomon along this pathway is that we must construct the right self-perception. We must construct the right self-perception. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon is a man of about 20 years old. So he's barely a man at this point in his life. But I want you to think back, if you're past that, and a lot of you are, I want you to think back to when you were 20 years old. When you were 20 years old, didn't you think that you knew exactly what you needed to do to be able to have a good life? When you were 20 years old, didn't you feel like that if you could just have a certain thing in a certain way, that your life was going to be okay, like you knew the way. If I can just get into nursing school, everything's going to be fine. If I can just get married, life is going to be good. If I can just have kids, life's going to be the way I need it to be. If I can just get the right salary, if I can just get the right job, if I can just live in the right city. It's like in your mind at 20, life is a formula. And if you can just plug in the right, the right variables into the right place, then you're going to end up where you want to be. And then what happens? Life happens. Life happens. You get into nursing school and your problems aren't solved. You get married and your problems compound. You have children and they increase exponentially. You get the, the money that you wanted, the salary that you desire, the job that you have, and yet somehow still you feel empty inside. So what happens is we go through life and we get what we want. And when we get what we want and it doesn't bring the kind of contentment and satisfaction and, um, and, and happiness that we expected, it hurls us into an identity crisis. 
And the opposite is true too. If you don't get it, if you always want to be married but you're still single, if you always wanted to have children but you're unable to have children and those things don't come into realization, then again you're hurled into an identity crisis because you keep thinking if I could just have these things, if God only knew what I know, if God would only give me what I want, then everything would be fine. You see, each of us has two identities. We have what I would call our given identity. That is, that's the identity, that's who God says that we are. Did, did you know when, we, when you read the Bible that self-perception is actually not natural for human beings? That, that we don't have imprinted upon us the fullness of, who, of understanding of who we are. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, God goes to Adam in chapter 2 and he tells Adam who he is. And he tells Adam what he's supposed to do. And he tells Adam what his purpose is. It has to be given to you. The other identity is our constructed identity. This is who we understand ourselves to be. So, so you have what God says about us. And then you have what we believe about us, right? Now, there's typically, in the life of a believer, there is some overlap, right? There's some overlap. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The bigger the gap is between your given identity and your, covet, your constructed identity, the more space there is in your life for misery, the more space there is in your life for misunderstanding who you are, the more space there is in your life for anxiety, the more space there is in your life to feel as though you're in a continual identity crisis, not able to be who you're supposed to be and not able to accomplish what you're intent intended to accomplish. And I think what we're seeing here in 1 Kings chapter 3 is the result of Solomon coming to the realization that there is a gap. That there is a gap between what God has said that he is and who he understands that he is. There is a gap between who, who Solomon perceives himself to be and who God has declared Solomon to be. So first of all, there, there is a place. He says that I, you have made your servant king in place of David. And so there's this sense of, of calling on his life. And so you, you can see that right here there is an overlap, right? That I understand that my place is as the king of God's people. I understand that you have placed this call upon me. I understand that you have given this charge to me. But if you go back and you read 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2, that does not go the way that Solomon plans on it going. Solomon has to endure an insurrection by one of his brothers, by his oldest brother. Solomon has to deal with political enemies of his father. And so here he is at 20 years old, and he's been waiting to be the king, and now he is the king. And he, when he becomes the king, his circumstances begin to melt away his bravado and melt away his sense of self because it doesn't go anything the way, like the way that he would like for it to go. And so he begins to perceive of this, this gap. And so what we're intended to understand is that the context, the context that lies behind the request that Solomon makes for understanding and discernment and the ability to govern well, the context that lies behind that is the deconstruction of his self-perception that it might be rebuilt in the way that God would have it rebuilt. Let me, let me show you what I'm talking about here. So first of all, he acknowledges, I'm called but I'm not ready. I'm called, but I'm not ready. Look there in verse, uh, in, in verse 7 at the end. He says, Servant in place of David my king, although I am but a little child. 
Now, I don't know if you spend a lot of time around young men. Young men about 20, 19, 20, 21 years old. They are the last people on earth that are going to tell you, I'm like a little child. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about. You got one in your house. They are the ones who are like, yeah, I can climb and jump off of that. That'll be fine. Yeah, I can drive 120 without consequences. No big deal. In other words, young men about the age of 20 are the ones who believe they are invincible, bulletproof, and have all of life solved and don't understand why it's been so difficult for everybody else all these years. But Solomon has been thrust into a situation that has caused all of that to begin to evaporate. Solomon has been thrust into a situation that that causes him to realize that he's not exactly who he thought he was. Remember, uh, David had told Bathsheba and Solomon that he was going to be the next king. He was going to be the one. And all of his life, he's been prepared for this moment. And you can just imagine, he finally gets the golden key. He finally just imagines sitting upon that throne for the very first time and holding that scepter for the very first time and the servants coming and bowing down to you for the very first time. You're like, this is all right. And then there's an insurrection. And then there are political enemies like Joab who want to come after you and take you down. People who are more crafty than you. People who are more, that are more experienced than you. And you've been thinking and waiting for this moment all of your life. And you're like, do you guys not recognize how important this is to me? Do you guys not recognize that this is supposed to be my big day? That you're spoiling it all for me? And yet that has been Solomon's experience. And so Solomon has come to the realization That he's not as mature or as strong as he thought he was. That Solomon, in and of himself, isn't as sharp and as able to do what he needed to do as he expected to be. And that, by the way, is an incredibly mature realization to come to. And what do we see in that moment? The gap is beginning to close, right? That the goal is to go from that to that. Where there's more overlap in your identity between the constructed and the given. Well, what happened? What does Solomon say next as he continues to kind of talk about this deconstruction? He says, not only, not only am I not ready, but I know that you've charged me, but I don't know how. You've charged me with being the king, but I don't know how. Look at what he says. He says, I do not know how, he says it explicitly, to go out or to come in. Now, to understand what he's saying, you have to understand what he's just told us. He's just told us that I have been put in the place of David, my father. I want you to think about that for a second. David, the king after God's own heart. David, the mighty warrior. David, the giant slayer. David, the one that has doubled the size of the territory of Israel. And now, here's this 20-year-old boy who's supposed to stand up and say, well, I guess I'll just be like David then. David had cast a long shadow. And Solomon is in the moment thinking, how in the world am I going to rule over a people so vast, over a people that are so many? And so he uses this expression, I don't know how to go out or to come in. And he's really alluding to the anxieties that he has about the job. It's an idiom from uh, ancient Hebrew that was referring to to military conquest, to, to go out to battle and to come in as the victor. Solomon was not a warrior. Solomon was a prince. His dad was a warrior. His dad was a soldier. His dad was a conqueror. And here is is Solomon voicing his insecurity saying, I don't know how to do that. 
I don't know how to govern the way that my dad did. I don't know how to, how to have the diplomatic relationships that he had. I, I don't know how to have the, wild, the wise judicial uh, judgment that my dad had. I, I don't know how to go out and defend our country the way that my dad did. I don't know how to go out and come back in. I don't know how to do this. In other words, David comes to the realization that what he needs to rule the people wisely, what he needs to live out the charge that God has given to him is not within himself naturally. It's not within himself naturally. In other words, the gap is closing more and more, right? The gap between who God says he is and the gap between who he understands he is is becoming closer and closer to one another. Look at what else he says. He says, and your servant is in the midst. I'm in the middle here of your people. And when I look around at your chosen people, they are a great people to be too many to be numbered or counted for the multitude. In other words, he says, I know that you're with me because I'm in the place of my father. I know that you're with me because I'm one of the people of God. I know that you're with me because you've called me to be the king. But I feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed. That it is setting in for this young man that he is not just leading any old people. He is leading the people that God has, shed his, has allowed his glory to rest upon and be manifested within. He is leading the people that, that God is going to ultimately use to be a blessing to all the earth. And he, he is not able to do just anything that he wants to do. He is going to be held accountable by the sovereign, mighty, holy name of God himself. And he looks out and he sees and he says, I'm just one. And there's so many. There's millions of them. Millions and millions of God's chosen people. I don't know what you want me to do. I can't do it. The job is just too big. The job is just too big for me. And you can see again, the gap is beginning to close. The gap is beginning to close. You see, what we see in Solomon... What we see in Solomon is a picture of what maturity and sanctification. When I use the word sanctification, what I'm talking about is, is how God works in our life to form us more and more into the image of who he intended us to be from the beginning. It, w- w- operating more and more out of our given identity than our constructed identity that happens over time. See, our, our identities can be, our self-perception can be constructed from all kinds of things. From our parents and our peers, from, from uh, mass media, from social media, from the people that we hang out with at work, from our church, from the scripture. And so there's always things within our constructed identity that are, are really solid materials if we are actually in Christ. But there are other things in there that are built, in on, built on rotten foundations. Things that are not meant to last. Things that need to be torn down. Things that need to be deconstructed if we are able to become who God intends us to be. If we are able to live with the kind of peace that he promises. If we want to have the kind of joy that the scripture talks about. That we have to close this gap. That we have in our lives. And the picture that we have here of sanctification. And by the way, you need to understand when we talk about the gospel, sanctification is just as much a part of the gospel as that moment of regeneration when you come into the faith. Many of us grew up in a tradition and when we think about the gospel, we only think about that sense in which God brings us out of death and into life. And certainly that is part of the gospel. But we walk through the narrow gate that we might walk down the narrow path. That we might be conformed into the image. We have been that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. That we might be conformed 
conformed into his very image. And the picture of sanctification is exactly like what we see right here in Solomon. It's the gospel. That the picture of sanctification is identifying those areas where you're out of alignment with who God has made you to be. And with who God has said that you are to be. And who has God and the identity to which God has assigned to you as one of his children. And it is tearing down those rotten pieces in you. It is deconstructing all those flawed concepts of who you are. And all those flawed uh, foundations that people have poured into you. And all those flawed understandings that are, that are holding up under you and leading you unto death and to misery. But it's not just de- de- deconstruction for the sake of demolition. If you just deconstruct those things without rebuilding, they leave you feeling like a failure. That's not the idea at all. That sanctification is tearing down that which is rotted, that you might build up that which is good. That you might build up that which is true. That you might build up that which is healthy. That you might build up that which is right. I wonder, I wonder this morning, how big is the gap? How big is the gap between what God has said that you are And who you believe that you are. How big is the gap? How big is the gap? Because however big the gap is, that is more space for misery. More space for for unhappiness. More space for a lack of joy in Christ. A lack of satisfaction in Christ. More space for discontentment with your life as you have it. You need to tear down, brothers and sisters, those areas in which are out of alignment and build them back up with better materials, the materials that have been provided for us through Christ in the gospel, revealed to us in the scripture. So we need to construct the right self-perception, bring alignment between our given identity and our constructed identity. Secondly, we need to prioritize the proper ruling desire. We need to prioritize the proper ruling desire. So, Gracie Kate. Is, and I'm sure none of you have kids that are like this. Gracie Kate starts making out her Christmas list about 6 p.m. on Christmas, after Christmas evening. You know what I mean? Like, like she goes and she's opened everything and she's celebrated and she's been excited. But she kind of gets to the end of the gifts on Christmas evening and she's like, Dad, next year. Next year for Christmas, I'm, I want this. You know, I, I know I got a Nintendo Switch this year, but next year I'm thinking PS5, you know. Let's step this up a little bit. Let's go ahead and go, go to the next level. Now, I want you to think about that because the idea of a gift is front and center here. It's front and center. That what Solomon is requesting is for God to give him something, to gift him. What's behind what Gracie is asking? There's two things. First of all, there's desire. There's what she wants. She's revealing to me what she wants when she says, on my list, this is what I'm asking for. And at the same time, it's source. She's also revealing to me who she believes can actually give this to her. She's asking me for it because she knows there is no chance that little nine-year-old Gracie is going to be able to scrape together enough quarters and pennies, especially when she keeps having to pay me a quarter for leaving the lights on in her room. There's no chance she's going to be able to scrape together enough pennies and enough quarters so that she can go down to Walmart and buy a PS5. It's not going to happen. And so this is the desire of her heart, but she recognizes that the the desire is beyond her, and so she needs someone to give it to her. That's what we see behind Solomon's request, that God give him this understanding mind. 
That what he understands is that this is, a, this is something that only God can give. This is something that only God can give. But this being the one request that he can bring before the Lord in this moment of anointing, he is recognizing that this is the ruling desire of his life. That this is what I want more than I want anything else. You can keep all of the money. You can keep all of the riches. You can keep all of the years. You can keep all of the palaces. God, if I have one thing, if one thing is to come for me, I want it to be that you would give me an understanding mind. Now, I want us to talk about this phrase, understanding mind. It's actually like if you have a different translation, every translation I read translates this phrase differently. And it's because it's, it's complicated. The literal translation from Hebrew is a listening heart. A listening heart. And, and the idea of listening, we can even go above, that we might miss, conveys obedience. That the way that the Israelites understood listening, that if I hear what God has said, if I hear what, what God has instructed me to do, if I, if I hear God's word proclaimed to me, then if I listen to it, I'm going to obey it. I'm going to obey it. There wasn't space in there to hear it but not act. Remember, how, think about when Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Let him obey. Let him not just know and cognitively ascend or, or give intellectual assent to, to this. Let him obey what has happened. And so there's a very real sense that what Solomon is asking for and revealing as the desire of his heart is he's saying, God, what I want more than anything else is I want to know you. I want to know you the way that my father David knew you. My father David, he says, walked in your statutes, lived a life of righteousness, was up right before you, and you blessed him. You made a covenant with him. I am the result of that covenant. And so, God, what I want above all else, you can keep all of the, all of the riches. You can keep all of the glory. You can keep all of the expansion. You can keep all of the palaces. But what I want is I want a heart that loves you you. I want a heart that is dedicated to you. I want a heart that is committed to walk in your statutes and to live uprightly before you. I want the relationship with you that my father David had. And this is the thing. I recognize that it is a gift that you must give. That my ability to obey and walk uprightly is not something that is naturally within me. That my desire to walk uprightly with you and to have the kind of relationship with you that you call me to is not something that that is normal for me or or something that is intrinsic to me it is a gift that you as the source must give it and so God what I want you to give me above all other things is I want you to give me a heart that is bent toward obedience and not rebellion I want you to give me a heart that is built, bent toward passion for your name and passion for your kingdom and passion for your glory and not passion for myself. See, to understand what Solomon is asking for, we, hear, we know that Solomon asked for wisdom, but I'm not always so sure we know what is meant by wisdom. And to understand really what Solomon is talking about here, and in fact, what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 22, what the Lord reveals through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what goes on throughout the scripture, is we need to understand what is meant by heart when the Hebrew people say it. Because they, they mean something typically very different than what we mean by it when we say the word heart. And that is why, that is why all the English translations are a little bit different. It's because they're wrestling with how in the world do I communicate with modern Western English-speaking people this concept of the heart that is so foreign to them. That's why they use something like 
understanding mind or an understanding heart in some translations or an obedient mind in some translations. That's why they do that. So, so, so what are they thinking when they think about heart? See, when we think about heart, we typically think about the heart as where we feel stuff. You know, I see a puppy and my heart is warm. You know, I, I see a little baby with cute little cheeks and I feel it in my heart. Or the heart is something that I feel toward my family. Or my heart is a, something that I feel with my passion. And then my mind, my mind is, the, is where I am dis- making discernment decisions. My mind is where I am uh, attaining knowledge. My, my mind is the, the place where I'm cognitively processing all of life. And so we see a dichotomy between the mind and the heart. But that's completely different than the way that the Hebrew people understood it. The Hebrew people understood that the heart was the locus of all of the faculties of the person. That the heart, you might could think of it like this. Like I understand scientifically that there are four ventricles in the heart, but there are three ventricles in the Hebrew heart, okay? And they, and they, they, so, so in one sense, the heart is where I cognitively understand things. That's why the word understanding is used here. It's where I cognitively understand. It is where my beliefs lie. It's, it's, it's my heart that makes interpretations. So there's a cognitive ventricle of the heart. And then there's an affective uh, ventricle of the heart. That is, that my heart is not just where I think of things, where I understand things, where I decide things. My heart is where I feel things. It's where desire is. It's where want is. It's where emotion is. So these things aren't, aren't separate. They're dynamic components of the same heart. But then there's a a third ventricle, and it is this idea of volition. That it's not just, not just what I think and understand. It's, it's not just what I feel, desire, and want. It's also where the choices are made. It's where the decisions are made. It's where action flows out of. Think about what Jesus says. That whatever you speak, what? comes out of the overflow of your heart. That, that your heart is making cognitive decisions based on real desires that lead to real life actions. Now I want you to think about what Solomon is asking for. He says, I want you to give me an understanding mind or a listening heart. That I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? Do you see what he's saying? He said, I want to know what is right. I want to have an understanding mind. I want to have an understanding heart, a listening heart. I don't want to know what is right, but then I want to see what is good. I want to be able to identify in real life situations, in situations that may seem gray or not black and white. I want to be able to make a discernment on what is good. And then I don't just want to know what is right, see what is good. I want to do what is, what is right. I want to obey you. See, what wisdom is, is wisdom is the ability to obey God in real life. Wisdom is the ability to obey God in real life. That what Solomon wants to be able to do is he wants a a mind, a heart that is so enthralled and captivated by the glory of God that when he comes into a situation in which he has to make a judgment about war or about imprisonment or about consequences or about judicial decree, he wants to be able to make that decision which is not spelled out explicitly in scripture in a way that brings glory to God and honors God and pleases God. And that's what you need, isn't it? That, That in other words... What we think about when we think about the heart, the way the Hebrew people would have understood it in our way of thinking is a Godward intuition. A Godward intuition. A, a, an ability to make decisions in the moment in ways that, that are bent toward God. To make decisions in the heat of the moment when the relationship is on the line that are bent toward God. 
to make decisions when in business, when, when it's not spelled out in Matthew chapter 4, what you need to do in your business decision, but instead, because you have a heart that is bent toward God, because you have a Godward intuition, because you have a mind that is captivated, because you have uh, feelings and desires that are submitted to Him, because you're committed to making choices that are in His image, that in real life decisions, you are able to make wise decisions that ultimately bring glory to God. So what we're seeing here is that the chief desire, the ruling desire, the desire out of which makes the decision for all of other desires in Solomon's life is this desire for a Godward intuition given to him by God that he might honor God, know God, bring glory to God, love God, seek God. And I think there's a, a place there for us to pause for just a second and say, what is the ruling desire of your life? What is the ruling desire of your life? If you could ask God for one thing before you heard the sermon, what was the one thing? Maybe a more accurate question is, when you ask God in the past, what have you been asking for? Because in your prayer life, what you're revealing is desire. In your requests made to God, you're revealing desire. What is it that you want more than anything else in all of the world? Because you see, it is your ruling desire that in that shapes and influences your intuition. That in other words, what you want most in your life determines the way that you interpret the events that you're looking at. What you want more in your life determines how you feel effectively in your life. What you want more than anything determines how volitionally you make the choices and the decisions that you ultimately make. Let, let's think about a couple of examples of what this can look like. What if the ruling desire in your life is achievement? Maybe you grew up in a home and no matter how good you did, it was never good enough. And the way that you won the affection of your dad is to come home with an achievement that he, you knew he wasn't going to be able to turn a blind eye to. You knew you were going to be able to put this trophy on the bookshelf. You were going to be able to put this certificate on the wall. And over time, what has happened is it has shaped in you an intuition that is bent toward achievement. So how do you evaluate yourself? How, how do you understand your life? You understand whether or not you're a success or you're a failure by your promotions or lack thereof. But by your, will, your ability to have the right degrees that are hanging on your wall or lack thereof. So many of you, you, you have already categorized yourself as a success or a failure, but it's built on a, an intuition that was woven into you a long ago by a corrupt ruling desire. How does it make you feel? Well, I feel like a loser because I didn't achieve today. Or I feel like I am better than all these other people because I did achieve today. How does it, think about how it makes you make your decisions. Do you know why you cheated on your test? Because you thought, you thought there was more to gain in the achievement of a test score than in integrity. Why is it that you would cut corners on a business deal? Because the achievement, because of the ruling desire that has shaped your intuition so that now it is making decisions that might hold you up in a way that makes you feel good about you, that is in alignment with your constructed identity and whatever that is. Let's think about another one. What about motherhood? What about motherhood? Oh, motherhood's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's, it's, it's God-wired, I believe. But what happens when it becomes the ruling desire of your life? Well, first of all, what if... What if God doesn't grant you children? What if in the providence of God, that's, that's a difficult providence he has for you to bear? Well, immediately, immediately your identity is thrown into a tailspin. 
You begin to evaluate and understand your life not through the lens of your given identity, not through the lens of what God has said about you, not through the lens of the truth of the revelation of God, but instead you begin to interpret your life through this lens of either I'm a great mother or I'm a bad mother. I'm an overly committed mother or I'm undercommitted mother. Your ability to uh, how you feel. Why do you s- just go into a, have a seething anger behind the scenes because nobody notices the kind of mother that you are? Or, or why is it that you fly off the handle as soon as the, the smallest critique is levied? It's because it is compromising your very ruling desire of your heart, your identity, your sense of self. How do you make your decisions? Why is it that you would neglect your marriage for the sake of more time with the kids? Why is it that you would forsake your church to take your kids to the ball field more often? You're making decisions in alignment with your ruling desire. And see, you can take beautiful desires, the desire to achieve great things for God, the desire to be a mother, which is God-given and beautiful and powerful, But when you take a good desire and you make it a ruling desire, it ruins your life. It ruins your life. And so the only desire that can bear the weight of your life, the only desire that can control your cognitive and your affective and your volitional life in a way that leads to life and not to death, to joy and not to misery, to peace and not to anxiety, is to rest all of your hopes upon the fullness of God, that God would give you a Godward intuition that is bent toward Him, that seeks to honor Him, whether it is in barrenness or it is in motherhood, whether it it is in business prosperity or in financial poverty. This is Paul's secret in Philippians chapter 4. So let me ask you, what is the ruling desire of your life? What is it that's shaping the intuitions that you have? And finally, I want you to see, receive the the good gifts that God promises. So this is the pathway, right? This is where we've been leading to the the whole way. So we have the context for what... What Solomon asks when he talks about this deconstruction of who he is and his sense of self and what he needs from God that he has not been able to find within himself. And then, and then we have the, 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 the ruling desire that sets behind the request that he makes that this is what I want above everything else. And so what I think we're supposed to see here in the pathway of an answered prayer, a prayer that it says right here, pleased the Lord, is to say when we begin to understand who we are, and we begin to understand who God is, and our hearts are ruled by the right desire, then whatever we pray, whatever we want, is pleasing to God. And when we, pl- when we pray prayers that are pleasing to God, God is pleased to answer them. God is pleased to answer them. That when we are controlled by the right desires and we are set by the right priorities and we are coming from the right position and we come and we submit ourselves to God and we say, God, this is what I want more than anything else. God is happy to look back at you and say, well, that's exactly what I want for you to do here. Let me bless you. This is what I think is meant by that verse uh, uh, in Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, that, that so often is misconstrued. He says, delight yourself in the Lord. I like the word delight. Find your treasure in. Find your passion in. Find your zeal in. Like the the joy, the contentment, the satisfaction of your heart is found right here. It is in the delight of the Lord that all you think about, you are enthralled by the goodness of God. 
And then there's the second part. Once you get that first part, there's the second part. And he will give you what? The desires of your heart. Why? Because now the desires of your heart are the desires of his heart. And when the desires of your heart are the same desires as his heart, then when you pray, then you better rest assured, brother, you better rest assured, sister, God is going to supply what he has promised to you. Would it surprise you if I told you that the very same offer that was made to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3 was made to you and me? The very same offer. That offer of a lifetime where, where God comes and says, just ask me, Solomon, and I'm going to give it to you. Ask me. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is teaching on the ethics of kingdom living, on, on what it means to live as one of his disciples in this world, and how we are supposed to be precursors of what the kingdom is going to look like when Jesus comes back from, the, from, from heaven and, and splits open the sky and the, and the trumpet sounds, and he rules over with, with power and majesty and righteousness that we, we are to live under that rule right now. And the Sermon on the Mount is unpacking that for us. And when we're getting kind of cruising down to the conclusion, when Jesus is getting ready to land that plane, in Matthew chapter 7, listen to what he says. Ask, and it will be given to you. Does that sound familiar? Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be. Not might be, not hope to be, not could be. Ask, it will be. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened. It's a promise. It's an assurance. But how are we to understand it? How are we to understand it? Does that mean I can go and I can ask for a Boeing 747? Does that mean that I can ask for a seven-room mansion? Jesus said, ask, and it will be given to me. No, 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 no. It is to ask in accordance with the kingdom. It is to ask with the intent that my heart is delighted in the Lord. And now my heart is bent toward the Lord. And because my heart is bent to the Lord, I ask the Lord for what he already wants to give me. And I ask, elevate that, and I hand it up. Look at it, I can show you from what Jesus said. Verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give, what kind of gifts? Good gifts. Not any gifts. Not any gifts. Good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give you what kind of gifts? Good things. Good things. Then in other words, I can go and I can ask God for the kind of relationship that is going to destroy me, and that is a prayer he will not answer. I can ask God for the kind of success that my heart cannot handle, and that is a prayer that God will not answer. I can ask for the kind of prosperity that I want, but it will destroy me. And God will not answer that prayer. But if I go to God and I say, God, what I want is a kingdom life here in this world. And I want to live with kingdom joy and kingdom peace and kingdom satisfaction. A life laid down before you. That is good things. And those are prayers that Jesus is pleased to answer for his people. Why? It is coming out of our given identity with a ruling desire to bring glory to God, a prayer that is pleasing to him. And that can I promise you something that many of you don't believe yet? A prayer that will satisfy you. It will satisfy you in a way that your salary cannot. It will satisfy you in a way that relationships cannot. It will satisfy you in a way that zip codes cannot. It will satisfy you in a way that a shopping spree or a vacation cannot. It will satisfy your very soul because it is what you were designed for in the beginning. So what are we to make of what he does ultimately? He says, I'm going to give you that. I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give, but, 
But because you asked, so maybe here we're tempted to manipulate God a little bit, right? Well, this is what you did for Solomon. Because Solomon asked for the good thing, you gave him all the other stuff. So, so maybe we give a, a wink to each other, and we go to him, and we pray, God, what I want you to do is make me humble. But in the back of our minds, we're thinking, but if you wanted to make me humble with, like, a sprawling ranch in Montana, that would be okay. So what, what are we to make of that? When he says, okay, then... I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to make you richer than anybody's ever seen, and I'm going to, I'm going to, give you, uh, I'm going to expand your territory in, in ways that are going to be legendary, and I'm going to cause other people to come, and your renown is going to spread, and, and people are going to come as far as Sheba to come and bow down and to just hear you talk. That is, first of all, God always exceeds what we ask. But it is a picture that God, God had a greater plan in mind than what Solomon could see. God had a greater plan for his kingdom than what Solomon could see. You see, Israel here, from here only to about 1 Kings chapter 11, enters into the golden age of Israel. It's going it's to be like fireworks. It's going to be up and burn out in a second. But what we're getting is a glimpse of a greater kingdom that was to come. When the gold, a kingdom which will be established and the golden age will know no end. Because that kingdom will be ruled by a wiser king than Solomon. That kingdom will be ruled by a, by a more prosperous king than Solomon. That kingdom will be ruled by a greater conqueror than Solomon. That kingdom will be ruled by one who is actually just and righteousness. And has it within him to do that which is good. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 12. The queen of the south, the Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something, what? Something greater than Solomon is here. Brothers and sisters, I am talking to you about a savior that is worthy of your life. I'm talking about a kingdom that is as real as you and me. And I am talking about something that can satisfy you today and that will satisfy you tomorrow that God is pleased to give to his people. And so today, Today, don't you let yourself be ruled by all the nonsense that you see around you. Don't let your heart be dominated by the fear that comes across your Facebook page. Don't let your heart be dominated by the ads that are always encroaching and telling you need one more thing to make you, yourself happy. No, 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 no. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.